Well, I do acknowledge I'm a little bit biased this morning, but I truly believe uh, that from the booth to the guys on the stage to everyone in between, uh, we have the most gifted worship ministry around. Can we tell them we appreciate them this morning? Absolutely incredible. There was an accomplished bagpipes player whose best friend just happened to be the director of a local funeral home. And being such close friends, the funeral home director would often call upon him to play the bagpipes at different people's funerals uh, that they served. And so one day he got a call from the funeral home and his friend said, he said, I really have an unfortunate situation here. Uh, He said, we have the task of burying a man who passed away with no known family, and not a nickel uh, to his name. And he said, we're just going to have to bury him in a pauper's grave and there's going to be no one there. And he said, so I just can't stand the thought of that. So maybe I thought we would go out there and I could stand up and say a few words. And uh, if you could just come alongside and maybe play Amazing Grace Grace on the Bagpipes, that's the least we could do uh, for this man. And the bagpipe player said, you know what? We've been friends for a long time. You just tell me when and where and I will be there. And so they agreed on a time and a date. But the cemetery was way, way out in the sticks. And the winding roads and back roads to get there. And he was so far out in the country that his GPS stopped working and, and he got lost. And so finally he got himself together there and pulled in. It was an hour and a half after they had agreed to meet. Uh, and there was no sign of the funeral home director at that point. However, uh, he felt terrible and he started to leave. He noticed that at the very edge of the cemetery, there were three men uh, standing there next to a fresh pile of dirt leaning on shovels. And so he thought to himself, I made a commitment to play at this man's funeral, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to honor this commitment. So he got out of his car and he put his bagpipes over his shoulder and he made a processional to the graveside uh, that that looked like you would have thought there were a thousand people following him. And so he walked up to the graveside and upon arriving there at that fresh pile of dirt, uh, he stood up straight and let loose the most impassioned rendition of Amazing Grace he'd ever played in his entire life. The three men standing there were were astonished. They laid down their shovels, they took off their hats, and they bowed their heads. And as the man finished, he got back in his car without saying a word and drove away. Finally, one of the men broke the reverent silence and said, Wow, that was a big change from the norm, wasn't it? And the eldest of the men said, It sure was. He said, I've been installing septic tanks for 30 years, and that has never happened all that time. Is that not the way that life works? Just about the time that you think you've got life figured out, it throws you a curveball and some change that you did not expect comes up on the horizon. Someone very wise said this, change is the only thing in life uh, that is constant and change is challenging because it seems like this. It seems like when I don't want change to happen is when it does happen. And the times where I want to change to happen, it proves to be elusive uh, when I often desire it. Well, we've been in the series For the past few weeks called the best gift ever where the thesis has been that, yes, Jesus came and was born in a manger and came to save us from our sins for all of eternity. But that same Jesus that came that first Christmas also doesn't just offer us hope for eternity. He offers us real hope for real change in the present. So we've been looking at what that looks like far too often, I believe. Uh, We get so excited in unwrapping the gift of salvation that we uh, realize there's so much more that God gave us in that first Christmas. That that it contained in the manger was not just eternal life and the promise of all those things. It also was the promise of a life to come that Jesus described as an abundant life. Where we're experiencing what God desired all along when he gave us that gift on the first 
Christmas. And so practically speaking, uh, we said there are two ways that real hope for real change happens in a person's life. First, we embrace the life-changing power of the sufficient Word of God. And so we looked at that last week. But secondly, we also said uh, that we pursue the Spirit-filled life. Uh, because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to live out the truths in the sufficient word of God. And we looked at those uh, realities that if you uh, have focused on the spirit apart from the word, uh, you just end up with emotionalism. And here's what I've discovered about emotionalism. And I've been in emotional church services before, and I guess as many of you have. My experience is this, is that emotion is powerful. It is. It lasts about as long as you get to the car. Am I right? And so emotional experiences do not transform our character. And so that's what happens if it's all spirit, no word. But the flip side of that is if it's all word and no spirit, you end up with dry doctrine. You end up with people with big heads and lots of knowledge, but but shrunken hearts and withered hands. That they know all these truths, but they don't have the power to live those things out. And so it takes both of those to experience real hope uh, for real change. And so last week we focused on the word. And uh, this week we're going to focus on the role uh, of the Spirit. And in doing so, what I'm going to do at the front part is, is kind of give you a little bit of an overview of the Holy Spirit. Here, here's why. I'm going to contend this morning that there is, uh, in our evangelical non-charismatic churches, there is a deficiency regarding our knowledge of who the Spirit is and what His role is uh, in the life of a believer. And so what happens is, we become very strong on the Word side, but very weak on the Spirit side. And the reason that we're weak is because we're ignorant. And because we're ignorant, we're often afraid of the idea of the Holy Spirit. And so we are, uh, we just, it makes us nervous to talk about it. Uh, we, we are not unlike the guy. This is a true story. I heard a guy tell me one time. He said, I'm all for the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Ghost makes me nervous, right? And so we become like that person. Like we like the idea, but it makes us a little nervous and we don't totally know uh, what it looks like. And so here, here's what's happened. Like in our non-charismatic evangelical churches, we've kind of created our own new trinity, if you will. Father, Son, Holy Bible. Am I right? Like, like in our not, like, like that's kind of what we focused on sometimes. So this morning, I want us to look at the role of the Spirit. So I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 16. This morning is going to be a little more topical than what's normal because there's not one chapter or one passage that contains everything, an overview of the work of the Spirit. Uh, but we're going to start off the conversation this morning in John chapter 16. John chapter 16 uh, is a fascinating verse as it relates to Christmas. Uh, because the birth of Christ and all the things in Luke 2 that we celebrate and the coming of the Messiah, all of those things uh, is, is, is wrapped around this idea that, yes, he came. But here's the problem. He's going back. In Acts chapter 2, we, we see the fulfillment of that. And so apart from uh, John chapter 16, God would be the greatest Indian giver on the history of the universe, right? Like, here's my son, and he's wonderful, and there's an announcement, and all these fulfilled prophecies. But... I'm taking him back home with me at a point in time. And so John chapter 16 is kind of the bridge between those two realities. And so uh, we're going to look at this idea here in John chapter 16 uh, between Christ coming that first Christmas and his ascension. Uh, here's the promise he, he makes. Uh, John chapter 16, beginning in verse 5, says this. Uh, Jesus is speaking there to his disciples. He says, but now I go away to him who sent me and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, now think about this. All of this time, all the fulfilled prophecies, they would have they would have been uh, well aware of all those things. And here he comes in all this grand, all these, you know, that God finally delivers on his promise. And then they walk with him and minister. They've seen they've seen incredible things. And he says, guys, it's been, you know, I'm leaving. Right. 
And so that, that's what's going on here in this passage, uh, the beginning of this conversation. He says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away. The helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the rule of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Is this not a fascinating passage? Like this, all this idea that, that Jesus came and all the things we celebrate at Christmas. Uh, but by the way, I'm, I'm going back to the Father. And so well, what's going to happen? Right? And he makes an incredible statement to me. He says, now I'm leaving, but, but it's actually for your advantage. Is what he says there in verse 7. And so uh, imagine how puzzling it would have been. Uh, that their mission wasn't accomplished. That they, they still had work to do. They thought, we're just getting started here. We've just been together uh, for a short uh, period of time. And so when Jesus said, hey guys, I know this is hard for you. Your hearts are filled with sorrow. Uh, verse 6. But, but it's actually, this is, this is for the better, Right? This is going to hurt a little bit, but this is actually to your uh, advantage. And so that seems just a little hollow. You've got to be honest, if you put yourself uh, in their shoes, you know, what was, hey guys, uh, we, we've had a great run. I mean, we've, we've seen the Father do some really cool things. Remember that one time when I raised that guy from the dead? Hashtag, that just happened, right? And so there are all of these things. And then he says, now, I know this is hard to hear, uh, but, but this, is, this is for the best. And I bet they're thinking, right, for who? Not for us. I wonder if Jesus used that classic line, uh, listen, it's not you, it's me, right? Don't take it personal. But he really was telling the truth. And so when he said this, it's for your advantage. I know you're sorrowful. I know you can't imagine how this is all going to work out. But this is totally for your advantage. Uh, it was the better. And so why was that? Because he was sending the helper or the Holy Spirit. And he said, it's going to be far better than just me being here with you. And so I'm going to give you this morning uh, just an overview of the ways the spirit works uh, to see why Jesus' words really are true. And then we're going to focus in specifically here at the end on how the spirit actually helps us or empowers us to experience real hope uh, for real change. And so uh, let me just start off this morning, uh, the idea of the indwelling uh, principle of the Holy Spirit, because if he does not dwell in us, if he does not dwell in us, then there's no hope for change from the inside out. All we're left with is gritting your teeth or, or just self-discipline or just turning over a new leaf or hoping you know, to have this emotional experience from the outside. But the Spirit of God dwells in us. And the indwelling of the Spirit is the action by which God takes up permanent residence in the body of a believer uh, in Jesus Christ. Now, how is this different? In the Old Testament, uh, the Spirit worked differently. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon them. And when it came upon them, it would empower them for, for works of service. But after it came upon them and empowered them, it would leave again. We call that the baptism of the Spirit. And so Scripture describes it. Listen to some of these examples. Uh, Judges chapter 15, when he, describing Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. And then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. 
and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that burned with fire and his bonds broke loose from his hands. First Chronicles chapter 12. Then the spirit came upon Amisa, chief of the captains. Psalm 51, David's Psalm there of confession. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, your presence that comes on me, your spirit that has empowered me all these times, do not remove it yet to never return again. And then Ezekiel chapter 11 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. And so after the ascension of Jesus, uh, the Spirit no longer came upon and empowered people uh, for works of service, the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, When Jesus, uh, after he ascended, it indwelled them. And he said, listen, it's, it's far better. I know we've had a good run. I know this is hard to hear. I know your hearts are filled with sorrow. But I promise you, when I send the helper and he dwells in you, it will be far, far better. Just trust me. The scripture says the spirit would indwell us permanently. Listen to what uh, the Bible says in John chapter 14, verse 17. It says he lives with you and will be in you. The apostle Paul said this in first Corinthians six. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God uh, with your body. And so so now he, here's a little just a pet peeve of mine. And, uh, you know, that I go around, I consult with other churches. And so I hear this term lots and lots of times is that when many churches, when we're meeting in this room, uh, that I say, where are we meeting? At? We're meeting in the sanctuary. All right. Now, that's a little peeve of mine, because according to those verses, uh, the sanctuary is no longer in a room. Listen, that's Old Testament theology where they built temples and tabernacles so the presence of God would dwell with men. God doesn't live in rooms anymore. After this, God lives in the hearts of men. And so this room is not the sanctuary. This is the sanctuary. And it's a beautiful one. Amen. It's a big one. Can we say amen to that? Like it's an XL sanctuary. And so if the spirit of God lives inside of me, then he can empower me and I can experience real hope for real change. I don't have to wait for him to come upon me and just give me this rush of power so that I can finally make that change. No, no. Listen, everything I have from the spirit is living inside of me. And so scripture describes this uh, over and over. And so the question becomes, uh, so what? Like, like, I get that. I may have not understood the difference in the baptism and the indwelling, but I understand what was in Old Testament. And after your sense of Jesus, now the Spirit of God indwells me. Never leave again. First Corinthians 16, John chapter 14. I get that. But, but so what? Like, practically speaking, what does that do? Okay. So I'm going to walk you through just giving an overview of what the Spirit does. And then we're going to spend the last time focusing on how it helps us really experience change uh, as one of the tools that God uses uh, to give us real hope for real change. So let me just give you uh, six functions of the spirit and the life of the believer. And some of you just heard a six point sermon. You just a little bit of you died inside. I get that. Right. And so I promise you we're going to stay on time. Uh, the first five, we're just going to hit them really quickly as an overview. And then we'll spend our time on the last one, how it actually helps us change. So uh, the Holy Spirit, first off, uh, we see in scripture comforts us in, in times of weakness. Comforts us in in times of weakness. This is taught in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He uh, helps us do things that we cannot do. And so he provides comfort to us. And so one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is that of comforter. And so sometimes when I'm praying with a with a family, I, I will say, Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do to provide supernatural comfort. 
And so there are times when you see someone walking through a difficult season and we describe, uh, even though there's a difficult season of affliction going on in their life or a painful trial, we say, you know what? But they have the peace that passes all understanding. What does that mean? It means the spirit of God has supernaturally comforted them despite the reality of what is going on. And so the Spirit of God, one of the roles it plays is it comforts us in our times of weakness or in affliction. Uh, secondly, we see it in the, the counsel of Scripture. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us. The Holy Spirit works through Scripture and people to, to change our hearts. Now, I'm going to throw out a big word, but don't get nervous. Uh, this is the idea doctrinally. This is called illumination. Uh, it's in John chapter 14, verse 26. Uh, it's described in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 2, lots of passages. And the idea of illumination is this, is that there are times when I can read Scripture and I have no idea what's going on. And there are other times that I can read the Scripture or hear someone teach the Scripture. And finally, that which was not clear becomes clear and my mind becomes uh, renewed by a new truth. And so the Spirit of God has illuminated something that was once unclear or dark to me. And so the Spirit of God comforts us, Romans 8. The Spirit of God teaches us or illuminates our minds to truth. Uh, that's why you ever heard someone say this, who's not a Christian? You know, I've read the Bible before, I just don't understand it. Right? Matter of fact, I've heard lots of Christians say that. Listen, a person who does not follow and have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God does not dwell in them, and so there will be things they absolutely, supernaturally cannot understand. Why? Because the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in them teaching them and illuminating new truth to their minds. And so the Spirit of God comforts us. The Spirit of God uh, teaches us. The Spirit of God intercedes for us uh, in prayer. That, that, that's fascinating to me. That the Bible describes in the book of Romans, I believe it's in chapter 8, the Bible describes that there are times when I am so distraught, I am so discouraged, I am suffering through such deep affliction that I don't even know what to pray. Anyone ever been there? Like, all you know to do is say Jesus' name. All you know to do is say, help me. Like, you can't even formulate words. It is so painful. And it says in those times that the Spirit uh, intercedes on our behalf through our groanings. The Spirit of God intercedes before the Father and prays on our behalf. So even in the times when I'm so low that I can't even form words to the thoughts that I feel, the Spirit of God says, don't worry about it. I'm interceding on your behalf. And so the Spirit of God comforts us. The Spirit of God teaches us. Uh, the Spirit of God uh, intercedes for us in prayer. Uh, the Holy Spirit, number four, provides uh, wisdom. He provides wisdom. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. Now, I'm under the conviction that, that 95% of what we know to live life is found in the Word of God. All right. Uh, scripture says that uh, scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the majority of what we need is found in the word of God. But I also said last week that, it, that he teaches in general principles. So so what happens when I have a general principle, but I don't know specifically what that looks like. All right. Let me, let me just give you a, a real life scenario. So we know in general uh, what the scripture teaches is that believers uh, should marry other believers. Now, so the Bible describes that as, as being unequally yoked when a Christian marries a non-Christian. So so we know that's a general principle. But but what believer I had a friend say this? He said, it's always the prettiest one. It's God's will. That's what he said. Right. It's like like which one? So the Bible gives general wisdom. Here's the principle to follow. But it's the spirit of God often that fills in those gaps in the specifics. 
And he says, this, this is the guide. I want to guide you this direction. This is the job I want you to take. This is the Bible. And I speak to that directly. And so the Spirit of God oftentimes gives us specific guidance in the finer details of our life. Number five, the scripture says this about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he convicts us of sin. Uh, John chapter 15, if you go back a little bit, John chapter 15, uh, verse 8 says this. Uh, but, but this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you'll be my disciple. This is the father loved me. I also loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in these. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. And so, so what happens when that doesn't happen? The Spirit of God provides conviction uh, into our lives. And conviction is an unpleasant thing, like it's an old school word. We don't even want to talk about that. But listen, conviction is a good thing. It is a warning sign saying you're getting off course. Your life doesn't look like those verses we just read. And so it provides conviction and then it guides you back into a right relationship with uh, Jesus Christ. Okay, so the Spirit of God comforts us. The Spirit of God teaches us. The Spirit of God intercedes for us. The Spirit of God gives specific wisdom where the Bible gives general revelation. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. And here's the last thing that we'll camp out on this morning. This Holy Spirit empowers us to change. I can't tell you how many times I've experienced personal frustration. That there's something I know to be true. There's something the Word of God clearly teaches. I'm not ignorant of that truth. I probably have taught that truth. I've studied that truth. But whatever reason, despite knowing that truth, for whatever reason, I just can't get to the place where I'm living it out consistently. And so my problem in those situations is, is not ignorance. It's not like, well, I didn't know that, or I didn't know the Bible taught that. My problem at those points in my life that are incredibly frustrating is this, is that while I know that to be true, I'm trying to achieve that in the flesh or discipline myself or just work harder instead of allowing the Spirit of God to empower me to make that change on a consistent uh, basis. So here's what I want to know. If you've ever heard me teach for any length of time, uh, you know this about me. I like practical. Raise your hand if you like practical. Yeah, like the worst class I ever took in college uh, was philosophy. Chris, like all theory. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, it's like, it's, it's, I, like the questions, you know, uh, if you were a car, what kind of car would you be? I'm not. So who cares? All right. A bus. Let's just be honest. All right. I want to be a Ferrari and I used to be a Ferrari and now I'm a bus. So I like practical like, teach me what the Word says, even if I don't like it, if it hurts a little bit, teach me, but then show me what that looks like, practically speaking. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make this as practical as I can and how the Spirit empowers us to change, because this is my core conviction. We're real good when it comes to the Word changing us, the practical part of that. Read it, memorize it, meditate on it. Here's hermeneutics. Here's how to study the Bible. All practical. When it comes to the Spirit, we often ditch the practical and it ends up being all experience. Now, do I believe that the Spirit of God empowering us is an experience? Absolutely. But if you don't know how that happens practically, then you're powerless and all you're left with is empty emotion. All right? 
And so, so we're going to be as practical as we can on this, uh, this idea that the Spirit empowers us uh, to change. Now, I'm deeply indebted, so let me just give a disclaimer here. Uh, so much of what I learned about the Spirit-filled life, I learned from uh, reading the, uh, Dr. Bill Bright's thoughts on the Spirit-filled life uh, several uh, months ago in our series on First John. Uh, Chris even taught a few of those principles, so I'm going to re-hit a couple of those. I'm going to do a lot better job than Chris, though. Amen? Yeah, no, he's a great job. But the reality is this. If we can't get our hands on it, you know what we're going to be? The most miserable of all people who know a lot about the Bible, but live defeated. And so we're going to be as practical as we can as it relates to the work of the Spirit and how this uh, actually happens. Uh, Because if you don't, you'll be incredibly miserable. You'll be so frustrated in your Christian life. You'll have things that you know to be true, uh, but you cannot get uh, victory over those things. You'll have lots of information, but so little transformation. I've heard this so many times. People say this, well... I think the most miserable people in all the world are those who don't know Christ. Can I just tell you that's not true? Can I just tell you that when I find people who who don't know Christ, who are living up for their own selfish pleasures in life, whatever that looks like, whether it's greed or gain or or partying or or whatever the case is, they're actually pretty happy. They're actually having fun. Now, the Bible describes that fun as for a season. And then the consequences will catch up. But they're, they're not the most miserable people I've met. The most miserable people I've ever met are the people who know what's true and know what it looks like, but cannot get there in their own life. That they know what the Word of God says. When you counsel with them, all you're doing is repeating back what they know, and they know those truths to be true, but they cannot get legs under it, and there's nothing more frustrating than knowing change is possible, but never experiencing it. And so we're going to be as practical as we can in looking at this. Uh, how do we actually uh, tap into the power of the spirit? And so uh, let me just give you a different way to even think about this. When we think of being spirit filled, he, he, here's a different way to think about it that I think will be practically helpful. I want you to think of the idea of being spirit uh, controlled. All right. Uh, so many times we say spirit filled, but I want you to think of spirit controlled. Because when I hear the word spirit filled, it has the connotation uh, that, that somehow I'm like operating on, on uh, half capacity. Like I, don't, like I got some of the spirit, but I don't have all the spirit. And so I need to be filled up more with the spirit. But I'm only like half full uh, at this point in time. Hear me this morning. You have all the spirit you need to experience real hope for real change. God is not the uh, creator of layaway, even though layaway is something like Christmas, like blue light special, right? Like, like it's not the Holy Spirit on, on the installment plan. Like, I'm going to give you a little now, but then we do more. You can pay it off kind of thing. And then eventually you'll be all the way to the brim. Now, listen, God gives us all the spirit at the point of conversion. And so the idea is not being spirit filled in the sense that I need more. It's the idea that I'm spirit uh, controlled. Now, you say, are you sure that I've got it all? Like, because I don't feel like I have it all. And if I was filled with the spirit, I mean, if I had everything I needed, then why is there so little victory in my life? Why is there so much frustration related to change? Listen, let let the scripture speak for itself. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says this. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ. There's nothing you're missing. Once you receive Christ, there is nothing missing in your life. So if you've been sitting back and saying, okay, I've been saved a long time or maybe a short time. and, And eventually... Like a mighty rushing wind, uh, the the Spirit of God has come upon me, and finally I'm going to change. Finally, I'm going to live out what I know to be true. No, listen, that's not going to happen. That you have everything you need in your union with Jesus Christ. 
John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. Never. Do you get that? Now, let me ask you a question. This is a little side note for you, all right? So I'm going to chase a little rabbit, but I won't track it far. When someone says you can lose your salvation, what they're saying is the Spirit of God is no longer dwelling inside of you, correct? Because can the Spirit of God live inside of you and you be an unbeliever? Absolutely not. And so what John chapter 14, verse 16 say, it said you have every the advocate who will never leave you. He will never depart. There are times you are dead to him in regards to, to being sensitive. There are times you don't live under his control. You get in the flesh, but he will never depart from you once he dwells inside of you. So hear, hear me this morning. Here's the good news. If you're here and you're frustrated because the things you know to be true rarely show up in your life. Here's the good news this morning. You have everything you need to experience victory in your Christian life. God bless you over here. There's a Pentecostal that snuck in among us, amongst us, right? Listen, is that good news or not? Right? I'm, I'm going to stop and t- stand to your feet if you would just clutton on. T- totally kidding. Everything you need. So again, how? Like, like I get it. It didn't have to come upon me. That's Old Testament. He dwells in me. I get it. I get that he's never leaving me, John 14. I get that I have all him that I need to empower change, Colossians chapter 2. I get all those things. How? You have four principles about uh, the spirit for life, or the spirit control life. Then I'm going to tell you what to look for to know that's happening. And then we're going to be done and to go home and overeat. Okay, so here's, here's, here's the first thing. If you want to be spirit controlled in your life and to experience real hope for real change, and not just a knowledgeable person, but a transformed person, First off, there has to be sincere desire to be directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It all starts off with desire. You say, well, why would someone not desire that? Can we just get honest this morning? We like to call our own shots, do we not? We like to be in charge. Now, we want to go to heaven when we die, but in between there, I'm not totally sure that I want to give up control of my, of, of my life to someone else. Like, what if... Can we just be honest about the real field among every Christian? What if God calls me to Africa, right? Like that's the only place a missionary lives, you would think. What if the Spirit of God is controlling me and I have to forgive someone that I don't want to? What if the Spirit of God is controlling me and prompting me to go and share the gospel with someone that I particularly don't care for? You see the difference? And so why would you start off with something as simplistic as desire? Because the reality, if we get honest this morning, everybody wants to go to heaven. But in the meantime, we want to call our own shots. And so it all starts off with a desire. Say, I want the Spirit of God to control me wherever He leads me. I'll go. All those things we sing, they're true. And so it starts off with a genuine desire for the Spirit-controlled life. Secondly, notice to start off with with desire. Uh, Secondly, uh, you have to confess your sins by faith and thank God that He's forgiven you of all your sins. First John 1, 9. And so one of the things that grieves the Spirit of God or quenches the Spirit of God when I'm no longer controlled by the Spirit, because when I'm controlled by the Spirit, guess where He leads me? He leads me into holiness. He leads me into holiness. And listen, I know that holiness has a weird connotation. Like when we think of holiness, uh, we think of people wearing weird clothes and looking in a strange ways. Now listen, holiness is simply living according to the manufacturer's specifications. 
And so when the Spirit of God, when I'm controlled by Him, He'll lead me to holiness. And the opposite of that is when I don't do what He wants me to do, and I choose sin. And so it starts off with a desire, and if the desire is there, but I'm not a spirit controlled, then you've got to search your heart and say, is there any sin that's grieving the Spirit of God in my life? And claim forgiveness by faith. Third step is present every area of your life to God daily. Every area of your life. To, you know what we're great at? Compartmentalization. Like, I want Jesus to have control over my eternity. I want Jesus to fix my marriage. But when it comes to my finances, I'm in charge. Or I want Jesus to have total control over my finances or, and my career. But I've got a plan that I've been working on for my kids. And, and I really want, I want my child to be this or this kind of athlete or this kind of student or those kinds of things. Can I just tell you, let me let you know, I'm going to break someone's heart for Christmas, all right? God's will is not for every child in here to be a professional athlete. Did you know that? Right? Or the next Einstein or Beethoven or, or fill in the blank. It doesn't totally matter. And so we compartmentalize and say, I'm going to give these areas of my life over to control. But in these areas, I'm willing to call the shots. No, no, no. You will never live the spirit controlled life until you surrender everything to him. Where do you learn that at? Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. We present our bodies as living sacrifices. That's hard. How do I do it on a consistent basis? Verse one, you renew your mind around the truth of God's word. Verse two. And the fourth step in experiencing the spirit-controlled life is by faith claim the fullness of the spirit according to his command. Ephesians chapter five eighteen. Do not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled. By the way, in the original language, it's a continuous uh, verb. There, it's an ongoing process. It's not like I went and I got filled up and I'm done. No, no. He says, listen, be controlled. It's a continual process, and we know that he'll answer that. Why? Because it's in accordance with his will. Now, can we just be honest this morning? We're almost done. When we talk about claiming anything by faith, it makes us nervous, does it not? Like that sounds like a little charismatic. But let me tell you the, the misrepresentation often that you see. It's when people start claiming with authority a specific application of a general promise. That's where you get into trouble. So let me give you an example. Does the Bible say that God will prosper us? Absolutely. Can I claim that by faith? Absolutely. Why? Because it's clear in the word of God. Now, it doesn't say specifically what that prosperity looks like. It may be financial gain. It may not. It may be uh, it may be experiencing health. It may be all these kinds of things. And so I can't claim specifically something that God has promised generally. But when it comes to the filling of the spirit, we don't have to get nervous about claiming that. Why? Because God's already spit out. This is my will for you. And so claiming it just simply means embracing the will of God by faith and moving ahead, knowing that's what he desires for us. So here's the convicting news. You and I are as spirit controlled as you want to be. And if there's some area of your life where the enemy has set up camp and he's robbed you of victory, here's what you need to understand according to the scriptures. He's there with your permission. Your permission. How do I know that? Because the being spirit-filled is the will of God. And when I pray in accordance with the will of God, he grants it. And so I'm as spirit-controlled as I want to be. How do you know that's happening? How do you know that's happening? We're almost done. What is the tangible evidence of a spirit-filled life? Let me just give you two proofs so we can list more, but here's two. Number one, you are more consistently, not perfect, not every now and then, more consistently 
produce the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If those things don't characterize your life on a consistent basis, you are operating in the flesh, not in the control of the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. You will also experience the Spirit's power to more consistently resist temptation and sin. You show me the person who just caves in, caves in, gives in to temptation, gives in to temptation. They're going to try harder. They're going to grit their teeth. I'm not going to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. I can't believe I did that. I will never do that again. And they do the very same thing again. What is that evidence of? That's evidence of a person who's not being controlled by the Spirit. They think they can do it in the power of the flesh. And Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, describes that person's life as cursed. As opposed to blessed. Producing fruit and thorns. You'll experience the Spirit's power to more consistently resist temptation. So one of the words we say during this time of year, we sang it at the worship set, is, is, is the idea of Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And can I tell you that according to what we taught this morning, that Emmanuel doesn't describe a season or a holiday it should describe a lifestyle for a believer. Because according to the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said in John chapter 16, that I can claim because the Spirit of God lives inside of me, I can claim with as much integrity as the first century Christians, Emmanuel. God with us. And that gives you real hope for real change that God laid down in a manger on that first Christmas. And it all starts with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads this morning?